0: Okay, welcome, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen of all ages, to another episode of the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Michael Martin, here with my partner, Mike Sauter. How's it going, Mike?
1: Good, good. We're looking at, uh, I think you you posted a picture on a Twitter feed, if not other places, of snow in your region. I think we were uh, just about a day behind. We didn't quite get the uh, what my uncle calls white poison but it was threatening and uh, now we're in uh, upstate New York. Uh, You wouldn't wanna be at any other place in the globe. If I could show you what I see outside my window it'd blow your mind in terms of foliage and hills and the Finger Lakes region.
0: Yeah, same here, Uh, which is weird because yesterday all week was miserable, cold and wet and I couldn't go out and take care of the cows. It was not fun. And then this morning I went out to take care of the animals and there was ice on the water. And now it's almost seventy degrees. <laughs> God bless you. God so bless so you. good. Yeah. So yeah. And the other thing. What else the other? So I I I'm I was having allergic reaction. Not a bad one, but to uh, I sampled uh, a methaglin I made, which is a, a mead flavored with herbs. But I flavored it with juniper berries and spruce. Juniper bushes make me itch if I touch one. They do. Um, but uh, so I sampled it when I was racking it a little bit ago, and and then I tested the alcohol content afterwards. Sixteen percent alcohol. So well, how gone. you feeling? Yep. I'm feeling pretty good. All right, but, uh, ready to so, rock uh, and roll. I only had a little bit. So okay. anyway, we're here to t- talk today to our guest David Bentley Hart, who needs no introduction, but I'll introduce him anyway. Uh, I first encountered David's work. Gosh, fifteen years ago, twelve years ago, when I read the introduction he wrote for Vladimir Soloviev's *The Justification of the Good*, and soon thereafter, I bought *Beauty uh, of the Infinite*, which is a, a an important work, I think, uh, for for this project of reimagining what theology and in phlo- religious philosophy could be. And then, over the years, I've had. Great pleasure, and I mean pleasure in the purest sense of the word, of editing three of David's books on behalf of Angelico Press, a publisher we both share. And the first one was, you know, I have so much in common with David. I think it was the the Dream Child's uh, uh, Progress, which is a collection of essays, and uh, I realized then that, and I and, and I do I know. A, Uh, David's brother Addison a little bit and I could tell the love for Lewis Carroll which has been deep in me exists in in David and his brother and then I can only assume for David's case because I know it's true for Addison that that extends to the Marx Brothers is that correct David
2: oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. and the Beatles Uh, I mean I mean um, you know my 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 list of the three greatest human beings are are, of course Jesus, Groucho, and Frank Robinson.
0: I'm with them. I, yeah, I'm and, with there, you there. Others,
2: there are others who should be in the list there as well, but sometimes I just like to summarize. That, that's a summarize. <laughs> that's a good start. And then yeah. the
0: second book I read, I edited of David's or copy edited it was his, you know, best-selling Roland in Moonlight, and uh, it was such a pleasure to. I laughed out loud. I don't know how many times. And I think probably the most uh, luminous moment for me editing their book was is the, the, the part where uh, I think David's having a dream and he sees Roland as a Buddha. <laughs> I was like, this is the best book that's ever happened to me. And I get paid to read it. Uh, and then last but not least... It, and then, to be
2: specific, I imagine him as the Buddha delivering the Lotus Sutra on Vulture Peak.
0: That's right. <laughs> uh it's it's a it's so perfect. So perfect a moment in literature. Uh and so imaginative. I mean the whole book is just a, a pleasure to read. Um and then interestingly enough, so last about a year ago this this month, I submit um my my book uh Sophia in Exile was published by uh Angelico Press and I'm seeing the themes already the connection Well the first essay in there is about kind of about Gnosticism, right and it has the, and it has the hymn of the pearl as a theme in that first essay and then right after that uh, our publisher John Reese sent me David's Kino Gaia which he asked if I would give it a give, first give it a look and then give it a copy edit afterwards and i just thought, i told john i think it's brilliant i think it's the best thing david's written i, I can't wait to it's published so i can give it to my kids and uh, and david's book also is based on the, on the hymn of the pearl so welcome to the show david bentley hart and thanks for being here
2: well, thanks for inviting me
0: good so so tell us what uh, what is your, your history with the hymn of the pearl first of all that you, that you that compelled you to write a story about it?
2: Oh gosh, um, probably. I probably was an undergraduate when I first read the Acts of Thomas, um, and uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah, I must have been an undergraduate and of course the acts of thomas is uh, w- one of the uh, more impressive works of uh, early if extra canonical uh, christian literature uh, obviously has themes that would be broadly called gnostic in it but again there's a certain vagueness to that attribution and it's kind of hard to locate within the work itself which particulars supposed schools or tendencies that it indicates but fair enough if we use the term gnostic as a general designation uh for a certain style of, of speculation that it fits in it but anyway the acts of thomas as a whole uh, is impressive literarily and contains a few poems one of which is the hymn of the pearl which is uh one of the genuinely impressive literary artifacts of those early centuries uh, of, of diffuse Christian sects. um I don't know I mean it it, uh, it stuck with me of course because it does um for one thing of course I asked myself why 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 the Orthodox canon can't have more yeah fun literature in it like that but, <laughs> but you know right? you know just that's okay I put it in the uh, the realm of fantasy fiction by uh, call it fan fiction you know on the part of early Christians um but also because obviously it it likes so much of what we call the Gnostic mythos which has to be distinguished from the Gnostic texts. some of which are fascinating some of which are incredibly tedious yeah um it it does capture some kind of pathos that I think is recognizable. Sticks with the sense of that we all have at times of being out of place in this world and suspecting that our true story is one that has been told elsewhere. And for that reason, I think it stuck with me. I mean, and I, in fact, once in 1992, I think while I was waiting, for a friend whose playing was very very late, I, I wrote a kind of children's fantasia narrative verse version of it out. That parts of which turn up in Kanagaya in the transitions between. Well, there are eight parts to the book. So.
0: Yeah, and yeah, so those those trans are your versions of the poem. So that's those were not translations but but versions would you say or were they translations
2: well i mean it straight i mean there's nothing every every episode in the poem and most of the imagery is taken from the original but obviously arranged in, uh, over a larger span um, but yeah it was it was i i never even went back and polished it properly but it's um, I, I thought it would be nice as a sort of children's narrative verse it is beautiful it's and, beautiful yeah. and picked and the up fact I was... it. It, it, the original is very beautiful in Greek it's... and well I suppose it's beautiful in Coptic my Coptic is rougher err, yeah. so I really don't have a, a literary sense of what constitutes good good Coptic you know okay but um I've always thought that that in general translations could have tried to capture something <laughs> Something more of its uh, of its visual uh, image, something more yeah. of its
0: beauty. Yeah. In fact, I I speaking of being an undergraduate and reading this uh, for the past I don't know four years, three or four years, I've been assigning the hymn of the pearl to undergraduates. You know, because I think it perfectly captures, among other things, you know, where they are you know you're sent into the land of Egypt don't eat their food don't you'll become like them
2: it's funny yeah it's right? it's, it's very much uh, also a common theme in fairy tales yeah or, of course in myth you know Persephone eats the pomegranates of Hades realm exactly so can't escape but but in, in a lot of fairy lore you, know, you eat the fairy fruit, the fairy food you forget yeah uh, or you can't leave that realm again and uh, So, yeah, Um, but it's a a wonderful poem, and uh, it it comes from a period uh, before uh, it became uh, the the habit of Christians to denounce one another for... (laughs) I like that. I like that rendering of that. Before it became
1: commonplace and like in our blood, too, I mean, to, uh, just run thing. everybody down.
2: Yeah, um, I, I keep getting accused of heresy, even I of course, the Thomists, especially these days, tend to accuse me of heresy. Me, um, too. But what's funny is <laughs> I often get, yeah, but but I get accused of heresy just for repeating things the church fathers said because you see, Thomists uh-huh. don't actually tend to know yeah. much about Christian tradition, uh-huh. you know, they don't, they just know. Thomas so if they, you can they come across a formulation about the relationship between God's freedom and creation for instance that doesn't fit the Thomas model the first thing they do is squeal heresy Andrew. yeah I mean, did I say squeal that makes them sound like pigs I'm sorry <laughs> I, me- I meant <laughs> me
0: either. um so if you could um give our audience maybe a, a little overview of what the book is about what happens in the book without giving away too many things
2: um well see this is a this is the thing is i use the book to be a, a commentary and a satire on just about everything so um it's uh it's it's set in a world called Kenogaya. guy not not keno Gaia because it, it's an epsilon the, the, okay Kenogaya. um that is literally a, a clockwork universe. I mean, it literally is built from springs and gears and, and, mm-hmm. uh, swinging weights, uh, by a, a demiurge. Uh, uh, and in this world, uh, uh a, a, a young protagonist or two protagonists, Michael and his friend, Laura, uh, and it's, it's a world that's authoritarian, where there's a, an official religion that's a kind of curious uh, combination between deism and early modern mechanistic uh, metaphysics, but enforced by the most draconian, uh, if incompetent, means. And into this world comes a visitor from beyond. Uh, Cold War ends, who, who reveals that, that in fact this world is an artifact of, of a sorcerer created principally by the abduction of his sister and the, use, and, and the use of her dreams to fabricate the world and the rest of the book that follows. On the one hand is Michael's quest to rescue his father from the authorities who, who come and arrest his father early in the book. But also the quest to set free this visitor's sister to, uh, and uh, I, I i don't know what, what i mean in, in a sense the, the the plot simply is the plot that, that almost inevitably follows from using the hem of the pearl it's it's about what someone who goes although rather than from the perspective of the one sent out it's uh, someone who journeys from his kingdom into the alien land where where something precious has been stolen that must be rescued and restored and the book follows from that I don't want to give away too much of the plot because I actually think it's fairly cleverly put together if I do I, so I, so myself. You know,
0: I, it is it really is and, and my 13 year old son Gabriel would vouch for you and I I, I asked people to ask you any questions he said no just tell him I love the book uh But the one thing he did say, um, I said, What what did you think of the book after you finished it? He said, Reminds me a little bit of John Maysfield's The Box of Delights. Do you know that book? Oh, yeah. David? Yeah,
2: I know know the Box of Delights
0: well. Yeah, and and because I read that to the boys uh maybe a year ago and
2: d- d- does he know the Midnight Folk as well the I early? don't think he knows
0: that one I think
2: okay well that you see there are two two books with K uh in them the one is the, the Midnight Folk and one and the second one is the Box of Delights
0: and, and and the thing is is uh your book is the kind of rollicking fun adventure that that Macefield pr- produced here and
2: I and I and I well that's that's it a was
0: yeah well good i'm glad you like it uh so what were what were the influences for you and and, and and i know you've been writing uh you've been turned to writing uh fiction a lot more lately
2: well that that was always more my my uh, inclination anyway to be honest yeah. if it weren't for the fact that the kind of i mean kind of guy is not actually all that necessarily indicative of the sort of fiction i would normally write um i can explain how i came to write it in yeah head, but, but um but uh, if I'd had my druthers, I mean, early in life, I, mean, I have like a collection of letters from editors saying, I love this. It's wonderfully written. I don't know how to fit it into our list. So, so I, you know, uh, and the books of theology and philosophy and essays sold. So they became how I made a living. But yeah. if I would just been, uh, left to my, my own devices and desires, uh, it would have been all fiction and poetry, and very little else other than the occasional literary essay, just to show off as much abstruse and recondite learning as I could pack right. into it. And after all, one tries to evoke all that's right. Well, it,
0: <laughs> when I think, well, I think you're I, it, as I told John when when he sent me the manuscript, I said, "This is this is brilliant. This is this is uh, something we haven't seen in literature for a long time. I mean, like, it's so refreshing." Um,
2: but but influences. I mean, I I, mean uh, I I don't know how you can say. It. I mean, I, I love children's literature. I love uh, literature in general. I mean, but but the thing is, I don't draw distinctions of genre because, to be honest, there are bits in it that that probably. Uh, or Wind in the Willows, Alice in Wonderland, Winnie the Pooh, yeah, but also bits that are W.S. Gilbert and, uh, and farcical, and other bits of it that are probably Proust and Nabokov, you know, my great, my great people, my favorite 20th century authors. Wonderful.
1: I I'll interject DeBalkoff, to say at one point Proust I wrote down, I'm sorry. Yeah.
2: Oh, I'm sorry, I wrote down some influences
1: that were coming up with me, it felt like reading it, David, that, uh, you know, Shovel was going into the ground, and all of a sudden, all these different themes, like the use of memory, um, you know, I. but I was thinking there's a great Peter Beagle novel, The Last Unicorn, that uses memory so well. I wrote down Cervantes. At one point, when I think um, Oriens was talking to um, Dr. Axiomorpha. I wrote down, something reminded me of Soloviev's of short history of the Antichrist. Um at a certain point, Don Quixote was right there, you know, and I was just kind of taking notes, and I'm going through my phone. Uh, certainly I heard um, Persephone. I, I heard uh, Orpheus and uh, Eurydice. Yeah,
2: that's, uh, that's, that's clearly. Clearly, there, yeah. Clear. yeah. But I just kept on writing notes, but what I loved about, about him the, the myth in the book that yeah. that's recited by Michael at some point about. about Absolutely aurea and argentia the two moons or the two celestial sisters and how one was taken into the underworld by by king Mm -hmm. thonos king hell but right 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 so yeah obviously i was i was drawing on that
1: yeah and the use of memory again you know that um so crucial so crucial i just somehow i just was thinking it's so needed it's so needed at this time very feminine um a, a powerful force if you'd speak to a little bit of the use of memory in uh, that novel.
2: Well, uh, <laughs> well wait a minute. Let, let me say okay. let, let me name, uh, one more uh, obvious influence that shouldn't go overlooked because it's so obvious that it's likely to get overlooked is Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Yeah. Uh, I mean the it, it was actually also another I mean, you know, perhaps the most famous sp- you know, crypto-Gnostic children's novel of of of, of the last century was. The, and
1: which was? I missed it when you said it.
0: The little thing. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, memory. Well, I mean, there's a. Is Roland in the background. Um, there's there's a line that that Michael's father is credited with at one point that. Uh, I, I wish, gosh, I should have actually have had the copy of the book here. Is it? That, myth is the true if symbolic memory of the immemorial history is the false if factual memory of the unforgettable uh, you know. mm. um that uh, I, I think there are levels of of, of memory in all of us I think that accounts a part for our dream life I mean we have the memories of the empirical ego mm. but I think we also remember something more than ourselves that memory is also immediate and I, you know I've always loved uh, Augustine's treatment of memoria because it's it has this wonderful uh, depth to it that memory isn't simply a recollection for him it's the totality of the mind even to the in the way in which the mind transcends uh, its finite psychological history and that's why God is always in memory it's retreated mm-hmm. into memory is to find the place where we all began and it's interesting you know like meister eckert will speak of remembering his first beginning in in the godhead you know not not meaning thereby that as a psychological personality he he can sit lie down on the therapist's couch and call up an, a recollection of him as meister eckert uh be, rather the 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 memory the realm of memory is is a realm of truth that when explored far exceeds uh, the, the, the finite boundaries of our psychological histories and so i think in the book I, I don't know if this is what you were talking about when you asked the question but 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 there is the strain you know which orions Keep saying uh you know this is your story as well you know the story i've just told you about myself is true of you mm-hmm. and uh and you know, if you could, but remember. You know. And uh, there's a scene. Again, I don't. I don't want to give avoid too much when when there's a bird in the book <laughs> that talks. <you> know. <laughs> but in order to to avert uh, something terrible, um, you know, confronted with with a great sort of monstrous possibility, the, 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 what's what what rescues them is the bird repeating. Remember, remember yeah. Yeah. where you, and of course, this was the old. And, and, and again, um, this seems to me to be something that, that has to be written into the very fabric of spiritual beings, you know, the life of spiritual beings. It's not something strange and perversely and threateningly Gnostic when, when you have these claims that, you know um what is it what is the knowledge you seek whence i've come right right uh whether i'm tending you know in fact there are three there who are you know yeah who am i and in fact those are the three questions the magical questions that that uh in the story of Aurea and argentia the younger sister has to answer in order to liberate her sister from the underworld. Um, and uh, so I, 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 I'm assuming that's what you... These
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, I was thinking, even as you were talking, why I felt so compelled to ask you about memory. I remember, um, I remember. But the, um, you know, where I come from. I remember Leon Bloy, he wrote, you know, that um, the Immaculate Conception, he was saying, you know, a divine sap escaped from Eden. And you get this sense that it came up through the generations. And, um, you know, America's kind of lost its way in many respects. And I I once wrote an article at this French Poetry Republic, but it was published over at First Things just on their blog. But it was me reflecting on a chapter in Christopher Lash's True and Only Heaven about the difference between nostalgia and memory in American culture, a, a really brilliant chapter. And wondering, again, we're dedicated to the Immaculate Conception that there's something about America and bringing into the Catholic or the Orthodox faith a much more pronounced role for memory, you know, and that's just, you know, I spoke pretty incoherently there, but it's just kind of a, uh, you know, to read about it in your book, it just brought all this stuff up. It well, seems so powerful, right?
2: Of course, that's, you know, sorry to change my glass. Th- these glasses are granny yeah. glasses. I know but I like actually em. better for the distance I am from the yeah. screen. Yeah. Uh, if I could do, uh, what I want a round one so I could look a little bit more John Lennon-esque. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that just looks too stupid sorry <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't you
0: know, yeah. yeah hey roger mcgwin but five going down
2: <laughs> um, <coughs> you know the uh well there's a reason why the central the central rite of christian worship is correctly called anamnesis as well as anaphora you know it's uh, it's a calling back into the present or making present. But it's funny, the thing, the act of anamnesis, as you know, no doubt, because you know the Orthodox liturgy, the act of remembering becomes an act of remembering not just the past but the future, because yeah, you yeah. remember you remember the second coming. You know, John Zazulis, I recall, called the Eucharist at one point a definition.
1: He said it's a memory of the future. Right.
2: Yeah. Um, which gets into certain other books I've written recently, which were also denounced as heretical by the Thomists. I really wish Thomas would actually learn something about Christianity, because I, I don't know if the Thomas, if the Thomist Christian dialogue can make any progress until they're willing to to wander into the alien realms of scripture, patristics, uh, Christian yeah. history, you know, because you know it's it's all it's all terra incognita for that sect but anyway um yeah I gotta uh, 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 putting all that aside yeah no Zizioulas is very good on that so it was, uh, uh, mm-hmm. um but uh yeah the the, the memory we, we, by memory we we don't what we don't mean is simply personal recollection of psychological histories that that's a small and local phenomenon within what's really the engagement of the spirit uh, in in a living and conscious community of, of spiritual beings within mm-hmm. the embrace yeah. of, of the mind of god the, which and is the I... of all things you, do you know the, the mm-hmm. confessions when uh uh augustine's friend nebridius dies young and he wonders you know if nebridius now drinking from the fountainhead of divinity and union with god remembers me but then he says but of course he remembers me because he drinks from you O god uh you know who art the memory of all things you know mm-hmm. you, um, you are the fountainhead of all knowledge. so he, he the brittius is mindful of me because he is mindful of god and in god and you know, and it's and it's probably a lovely it's one of the loveliest moments of the confessions for me um yeah for all the nasty things I say about the late Augustine which aren't nasty they're they're actually we're right there with you it's lamentation for a great mind uh, mm-hmm. that, that simply got caught in the travels of bad bad arguments yeah. right
1: yeah and one more thing Michael just because it'll be the end of memory is that um a, a theological, well, just a hero of mine, a thinker would be Ivan Illich. But, you know, this great recent biography by David Cayley, you know, puts the theme of friendship central for Illich. And I think I can't deny that, like, your work in this novel on memory, but you also just do an amazing thing in there between friendship and memory, you know, um, that jumped out at me. Is that a connection you're very conscious of? You know, and could you well, elaborate yeah, that thing, just for me? You, you mean yeah. the fact
2: that, again, I'm trying to avoid giving away too much of the plot but then again it probably not an important thing to worry about um you, you mean when when Oriens has been deprived of his memory yeah but what he can't forget is uh, is the friendship he, he forged everything else becomes negotiable the rest of his time in, in egypt land so to speak uh it, it vanishes but that won't vanish because the connection isn't simply a matter of recollection it's at that point of memory of his ident- uh, a point of, uh, identity, yeah. His identity. Yeah. yeah. Which again and, then actually ties into yet another of my my heretical texts that "All Shall Be Saved." But... <laughs> so now <laughs> that you're talking to okay. me, I realize that there are themes in this book that are fairly constant. In the yeah, that
1: there's a lot of your "All Shall Be Saved" in the book. A lot of it. Go ahead, Mike. I cut you <laughs> off there before. Uh, no,
0: just I, I, as you you guys were ta- were speaking, you know, the thing I kept thinking about was the issue of identity that comes up here and which is why i bring it to my students and the, the hymn of the pearl to, to the students and uh and it's also david probably knows this uh, it's the hymn of the pearl is alf- also part of the scaffolding of terence Malick's film the knight of cups right. which not,
2: not i think Matt like it is best but okay
0: but it's it's part of it's part of the scaffolding of this. I mean, there it's there are even direct quotes from The the Pearl. Oh, it, be, it begins narration it
2: begins with the, with, yeah. the, with the telling of the story of the and Pearl. Yeah,
0: and and uh, but but that really is a, a film about a man who's lost his identity, his his awareness of who he is, yeah. right? Which is and I, and I think it's uh, you know to our theme, you know, I think this is important an important issue, and I think this is. Uh, What has struck me, and as I was working on Sophia in Exile, what really struck me is, wow, you know, these Gnostic texts weren't really discovered until 1947 or so, and they—it's like it's almost as if they've been saved, you know, in storage until there was a culture mature enough or at, at the right stage maybe mature is not the right word at the right stage
2: that to, wouldn't to be learn my characterization of late modernity i, was, I think we we're
0: uh, well mature know. is that the word <laughs> but but at the right stage and and, and but by, by that i mean you know the the, the question of uh, a constructed reality that has nothing to do w- with what's real
2: well i think that the the, the that it's interesting. I mean, I, again, I, I think that, you know, again, I've been characterized as being uh, sympathetic to the Gnostic. Actually, what I am is, is sympathetic to an early Christian intuition and, as I've said, pathos that's expressed variously in Paul and John, in the New Testament, and various of the well in clement of Alexandria, but also that you find in things that are called gnostic texts i've become more and more unhappy with the very category of gnosticism as, yeah. as something distinct although i i mean obviously i'm willing to say that there was a lot of nonsense too i mean when Irenaeus accurately points out some of the sillier mythopoiesis of some groups then you know you're you're moving into the realm of scientology you know you, you realize that this is this is a um a danger of of any uh religious culture is it is it's going to have its kind of exotic uh ventures into myth unballasted by an intelligent metaphysics. And so I'm not I'm not making the apologies one way or the other. I'm just saying that our picture of the early centuries has been badly distorted in many ways. Agree. One is just the, the long f- theological history of forgetting the cosmology and the spiritual world within which the New Testament was written I mean when you go back to Paul's language uh, you know many of the things that we find exotic and strange in the Gnostic documents was because they're translated differently the language they're using is actually Paul's language and John's language and quite often not in a subversive way right but you know at other times in a way that cuts against the grain because you know i don't you know paul's not a paul paul and john both allow for very heavily dualistic um formulae but then within the embrace of a non-dualistic um metaphysics that probably is missing from say Sethian. a lot of Sethian traditional so that's fine i don't mind say well this group got this wrong this group got this wrong but the Orthodox tradition definitely got Paul wrong well, I mean Orthodox small o, meaning both yep. East and West got Paul wrong on a lot of things uh you know the late Augustine definitely got Paul drastically wrong but also the larger <laughs> like tradition um extracted him from the second temple the he and the early apologists like Justin and the early Christians lived in. And his emphases got lost. I mean, the the degree what he understood by spirit, what he understood by flesh, what he understood by salvation, which really for him is an anastasis, you know, both a resurrection and an ascent through the spheres of the now conquered powers that separate us from God, both in a symbolic sense but in a, in a very much more literal sense than we today would tend to right. have and and so what I think has happened you know with the discovery of of these documents in part has been the correction of some bad scholarship but it is I think true that as children of late modernity having inherited a, a meta a, a mechanistic metaphysics but one that's in a sense in decay both because it's not a useful paradigm in the sciences and I, mean, I think both the life sciences and physics are there, but also because it's been so damn disastrous yeah not only because it's alienated us from the natural world around us it's given us the power to destroy it on a scale I mean we're murdering the world at first our destruction of the world happened gradually enough to elude our notice but then it turned out also to have been happening quickly enough to have escaped our control yeah and and in that world then suddenly the the Gnostic story has a different meaning in a sense and we no longer have to think well are we talking about two gods here well we're talking about a Demiurgic reality right there is some governing spirit of modernity that has created a false reality a mechanized universe a universe that's nothing but uh, an endless reservoir of material dead material elements to be exploited by the acquisitive will excellent excellent in that way they speak to us some of these texts like i think the apocryphon of john does i think yeah the uh acts of thomas speak to us in a way that they didn't necessarily it has a different meaning for us and maybe a more important one and so if there is if you you, you seem to be suggesting there's a providential aspect of their rediscovery. if nothing else they prompt us to return to the early Christian world and say well wait a minute you know that that protest against the principalities and powers seen from the perspective of the present uh is incredibly poignantly relevant yeah, to the reality yeah. because the the encompassing reality Say, of capitalism, of the nation state, of mechanistic thinking, of, of you know, Heidegger, not a moral resource to be consulted too credulously, but nonetheless, even Heidegger is the age of technology, the inframing, the reduction right. of material existence to inert matter that is nothing more than an object of the exertions of the human will um yeah. and maybe that's my part of my fascination with the Gnostics is 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 I think we are trapped in a false reality now a technologically constructed yeah, machine with extraordinary pervasiveness power and plausibility because we've been indoctrinated into it in which we have been entirely cut off from the real vision of things that that at one time was the universal patrimony of all of humanity mm-hmm. uh, pagan or or otherwise uh, indigenous faiths pagan faiths early christian early muslim early you know in, in indian east asian religions this sense of belonging to a spiritual community that's also the community of nature and creation right it's been cut off from that altogether where our spirit was first reduced to a ghost in a machine and then into in two algorithms in, in a computational structure or, or functionalist illusion and the world has become a machine of endless production although it's not endless it's exhausting itself and dying and all the beautiful spiritual mysteries that inhabit it, including the the spiritual mysteries of other creatures other ways of being conscious other let's say like the way that an octopus is conscious yeah is being extinguished by that demiurgic monstrosity that has created this this evil order of things the capitalist late modern right national nation state model of human existence within a mechanized disenchanted view of of human consciousness is something that that suddenly makes this gnostic protest seem very plausible again poignant real and it reminds us that this was also part of the essence of early christianity something obscured and occluded by bad theology bad translation and doctrinal authoritarianism at the worst moments Mm. i don't mean healthy development of dogma i mean dogma reduced to a sterile set of propositions that are used to expel any sort of speculative or imaginative attempts to reappropriate yeah. the lost world i'm just talking at, at high speed here i'm not on cocaine by the way this is uh, yeah,
1: honestly, i talk very fast you're uh, to, one more thing for narcissism <laughs> uh, michael you remember and. David, you might know the scholar. We had him on some weeks back. Arthur Versluis, a scholar of Gnosticism at Michigan State. And he said something that was interesting to me. And he kind of offhandedly, he was saying this thing that Vogelin and Hans Jonas are talking about, like, you know, spirit versus matter, elite knowledge. He said, yeah, politically or something. It's probably a thing and they need to write books upon it. But he said, he said, it's not Gnosticism, right? and that, that well, there well,
2: jonas, jonas jonas had certain insights he of course was working of course between the first and second halves of uh was, uh, uh, was it guys uh the Nagamati documents appeared but 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 jonas uh is right about certain things he's right about um but but on the whole yeah he's he's coming out of the tradition that was I mean, what he's doing is, in a sense, what Bauer and Nander had done in the 18th century when they tried to assimilate Gnosticism to German idealism, which is okay. a complete category error. Is actually the reverse of, re- of, the, of the of the reality um, in many res- in many respects. But then, uh, of course, Jonas, a heretical student of Heidegger, you know, but Jonas is a genius with Vogelin he was bright uh, but uh you know, use of the word gnosis and gnosticism is just completely confused nuts. more than illuminator you're saying completely nuts it, it's it's completely useless i mean okay, should,
1: yeah. i'll be honest i hadn't used it myself so much but in when fact, this article said it
2: should have called it episteme rather than gnosis or oh, okay epistemism or something uh but it's definitely it has nothing to do with Gnosticism in the early centuries and it's just confusing to use the word that way he's talking about uh technocracy rule by expertise and then he's you know because of his uh, let's say simply uh, uh political commitments of his that I find repellent he decides very uh in, in a rather nasty way to sort of throw a lot of things together as if they yeah. were all one so that uh you know one kind of expertise that's perfectly benign suddenly gets associated with the nazis or something yeah, so yeah. i'm not i'm not a big fan of vogel you should um
1: you should write another eric fantasy right. novel where some like arch villain is actually eric vogel eric
2: vogel yeah I, but again <laughs> fantasy fiction isn't really my normal nature. that's the funny thing i wrote yeah. that book, in part because i was very ill and i was trying to write myself out of my sense of helplessness mm and so i think the gnostic theme immediately made sense to me because i was trapped in a very painful debilitating depressing illness and and so everything and, looked very bleak and, and, and was
0: it, this at the beginning beginning of COVID, david wasn't it
2: no no the, no? the, the book came in two um, okay spurts so to okay. speak uh the first was when i was in st louis I, I wrote the book very quickly in the sense that the two halves i wrote were very quickly they just happened to be <sighs> separated by five years or something. okay wow because i came to notre dame and i immersed myself in my in, in the work i was doing here in order to make my research grants yeah legitimate but what happened was i was i, I, I in st louis and i wrote the first half of the book up to the point where where the our our trio of young heroes arrive in Canopolis to try to write myself out of a sense I couldn't read I couldn't concentrate I was so miserable and so sick but I could write and then when I finished at NDIS and the covid shutdown came I couldn't work at the library I thought this is a perfect opportunity to pull it out and finish it And I finished the second half in about six weeks so the first half was written more slowly over a period of about two months at the end of my stay in St Louis fascinating um and yet it, it flowed you know I mean mm-hmm. I, I think you'll attest I hope to the <laughs> quality of the prose and the structure yeah. of the book and yet there wasn't a lot of revision in it it, it just it, it was there writing itself and I think I was writing myself out of depression at the time um it's not that I I would otherwise normally be just strict realist i not I'm just saying that fantasy fiction as such I mean there's always something fantastical and dreamlike and whatever Fiction I write, I'm not. A, 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 that's just I'm always writing about dreams. I don't yeah. know why. But uh, in the case of that book, uh, it, it's a genre that that, but for the situation, I might never actually have written it. Did you have a
0: particular yeah. audience in mind, David, when you wrote the book?
2: Well, obviously, you see, I'm not of the I'm not of the opinion that you write down to younger readers. I grew up that's
0: what I love about it yeah
2: things like The Wind and The Willows yeah and or just even up into the seventh Watership Down pick up Watership Down you most you would be told today that by many publishers that you can't write that prose for young readers and yet can you name two books that have been more loved by children yeah certainly like somewhat older children like you said 13 13 is about the right age but I also wanted it to write wanted to write it for adults. So there's a lot of adult satire and adult pathos in it too. I think it, it's not a deep character study in the way you know, it's not Tolstoyan, but I think the characters are consistent at the level of the kind of narrative it's supposed to be. I think they they think are, so. You know who's who from what they say.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I also think you know, going back to our our part of our discussion about the contrived worlds in which we live um you know the technocracy you 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 provide these young readers with with a way out of that in this book which is what i think it's so where its value lies in a way is you give you give these young readers a story to identify with to seek what's real It is, is, and where they're not going to be able to read the *Hymn of the Pearl* or any of the Gnostic scriptures or anything at that sophisticated level. But this is where they are, and this is what I noticed with my with my son when he when he read it, is that it. I knew it would inspire him, but but it it gives them a key. It gives them a model for for understanding the world.
1: Don't you think it can take them out of the left-right paradigm and? Put them into this of, like. Uh, I'm sorry, you break
2: it up a little, Mike. I'm sorry, you
0: broke. Oh, I'm
2: starting to uh,
1: You said it. Okay. Oh, it's just um. Michael was saying it gives them a paradigm. I think so. I'll try to make it more clear, not to reduce it. Is that it? Um, you know, we're handed a left-right paradigm that has just, I would say, very limited explanatory power. But what your your novel does, David, which Michael was alluding to, is it, It's one that I would say, in shorthand. We're looking at Sophia versus the techno structure um, or in, in, a, in a passage I'm looking at right now. Again, it's you have memory again. If I can read, can I read a few of your lines, David? Oh, Well, let's see if you can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Professor <laughs> Tortoise smiled indulgently yeah. and briefly yeah. closed his eyes. Then in a more deliberate manner, he said, it's confusing, I know, but you must believe me and not your own memories here. Because, because I'm an expert. We all agree that's a key word there. Yeah. I'm an expert in these matters. Moreover, you're a child or at least not yet quite an adult. You haven't even achieved full development in your frontal cortical lobes. By contrast, I'm an adult. I'm a priest and a psychologist and an economist. There's a lot in so many of your sentences. There's yes. so much there. And I thank you for that. But it's this uh, paradigm Michael is talking about. I don't want to say Michael says it the same way, but shorthand for us might be Sophia versus the technocracy, the feminine versus this, uh, the right brain versus the left brain, something like that is a starter.
2: Sure, though, though when you break it down into feminine, masculine, I think, I think you know, the nature of of, of yeah. trapping the masculine and agree in <laughs> uh, in since they showed themselves historical developments too. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the way yeah. because the, the, you know, it is always the voice of women that are suppressed so you notice that kenagaya is a sexist world too you notice that you know the, 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 that laura who's you know the brave and diligent one, all they can ever say about her is what a pretty little girl you know? <laughs> uh, condescending her. of course yeah she's the most lion-hearted of the characters uh, in the book and um, it's sure. uh, michael who's sort of the studious well-behaved uh, uh, uh you know one who would who would uh, exemplify would be the, the girlish virtues of being a good yeah. student and all that you know mm-hmm. yeah. um but w- w- whatever the case yeah i um you know, i had just had a conference a recorded conversation mm-hmm. that'll show up on my sub stack in a couple weeks with the novelist sally vickers whom i, I think is just wonderful Novelist, not my my best performance. I have to admit, I, I, I'm a bit uh, uh, inarticulate and, and anacaluthic in my delivery, <laughs> because just sometimes I am. It's the circadian rhythms, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'm 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 glib and eloquent, and at other times I talk like uh, uh, a tortoise chewing seaweed. Uh, but she she was wonderful it you was know, one of these about her novels is um that the realm of imagination the realm of vision and the realm of everyday experience are constantly interwoven I mean she's a, she's a wonderful in one sense very much a realist in another sense though there there's their fairies are angels their yeah. divine visitations always at the margins of things and you get the whole sort of great chain of being in her in her fiction sort of principium plenitudinous uh there is the, the natural the preternatural there's the angelic the cosmic the divine it's all there we're not uh, we're not close she i mean she's someone who's peering out through the uh, the cage uh and she's a friend i'm not saying this to so she she's a wonderful person so anyway that that'll show up a bit later and um but she she was very good uh, i mean she likes and, and and liked the fact that it moves out of a realm of pure certitudes you know dogmas and the the sciences here are dogmatic as well in fact to the point that there are laws about how powerful a telescope can be for fear of uh, offense um the religion is is as i say this sort of weird austere deism that has evolved out of there was an earlier period in this planet's history when apparently the demiurge hadn't had quite the sort of technocratic sense of technocratic control again that he later has developed that she liked the fact that it moves out of the world of certitude into what she thinks at the end is more of a world of open possibility it doesn't it doesn't end
1: in i 100 percent agree with her the image yeah. that came to me is we once went from uh, in the rochester diocese a bishop had been around for so many years to a new one And the vicar general at that time, and I'm not saying it's the crystallization of wisdom. He was just reminding people that, you know, uh, the first bishop had had plowed these fields and another one can plow other fields. And what, again, I see you doing is freeing up so many of our symbols, other narratives, uh, and exactly what you're saying. Just open, open, a multiverse as opposed to William Blake or William James block universe, right? Um, Yeah. And if this is what we need as much as anything. Another influence,
2: me. by the way, William James. Uh, on, oh, good. On yeah, I'm glad well, I was sniffing I think, that yeah, out I too. I think William J- James and Pierce both. Uh, Who's the second one, David? Pierce. Charles Sanders. Oh purse. yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Not, yeah. not Pierce. People often yeah. say Pierce, but he pronounced it Purse. Okay, you know, I got it. So one of those things you just have to know. Like <laughs> it's not I Powell. It's Anthony. <laughs> for some reason. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, in a different, you know, a different avenue back into an enchanted universe. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway. But yeah.
0: but I have to say though, I think that's what I appreciate in all of your work is you're a thinker who who's open. You know who is not afraid to go where, where where academics are afraid to go. In fact, one of the one of the things I use from you in the classroom is uh, it's from about twelve years ago, maybe. Uh, it's your review essay of the Secret Commonwealth that was that was on in uh first things, and I have these college students read it, and they're. For those of you who don't know, that the Secret Commonwealth is a, is a book from the 17th century about the the, the Secret Commonwealth of fairies and fauns and elves. And David's got this wonderful uh, review essay of it, and, and I use it as an example of how to really write a review essay, but also to to let it let the students have permission to wonder whether fairies exist, because they haven't well, this been given out
2: that. in my conversation with Sally Baker as well, where we both basically completely forgetting that, that we the, the, well, not forgetting, completely indifferent to the fact that we were being uh, recorded, uh, just freely admitted that, yeah, we're pretty sure they're fairies. So.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure of it. I know my daughter,
1: my oldest daughter, when she was a child, was talking to things in the backyard, yeah. you know, and so she saw something that I lost the vision of. And this seems, it, I don't know, it's like um, a perceptual
0: thing to me. Yeah. And as I've been thinking, we need to have a show on fairies, Mike.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, you see, um, actually, in fact, I will, I will direct you to that conversation I had with her, as I say, an excuse broken sentences and, and the unfinished formulations. I was just all struck in the presence of, of though she's a friend, she's also yeah. a novelist I greatly admire. Yeah. So, nice. um, nice. but, uh,
1: I'll definitely watch that.
2: Yeah, the, the, uh, in that I, I, for the first time ever, divulge my one unforgettable fairy experience. You know, Say it again.
0: Well, Let's go for the second time no, no, ever. no, 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 no. no. <laughs>
2: oh no, uh, we got to watch yeah, that one yeah, see, okay yeah that was a teaser okay <laughs> so well done so well done
0: this guy knows how this media yeah, works. you don't need a publicist. yeah <laughs> yeah
1: media studies um media studies guru David Bentley Hart but I actually I actually,
2: yeah. actually actually my best publicists are the ones who attack me I uh, I you know as I said I have this this Substack page and uh, it was this um review in the journal formerly known as first things <laughs> me, I now just call it that heap of
0: but, yeah.
2: it. Um, but there was a there was a review of my book, Tradition and Apocalypse, by, by a guy named McDermott, and it was just it was unlike any. I mean, I've had other reviews that were tepid, some of the very enthusiastic, some tepid, but they all more or less knew what the book was about. This was just insanely wrong about yeah. everything the book said, and ridiculously hostile and condescending. And so I replied to that. But somehow, because he had reviewed the book and I replied to it on my Substack, suddenly the, this this became a great advertisement. Apparently, because I got like four hundred new subscriptions in <laughs> two or three days. Yeah. So I'm kind of like begging first things to keep attacking. Let me, me have it. Yeah. Come on, guys! It's I can the take
0: bugs, it. The bugs, money. You're, Let you're doing it for America, it. for God's yeah. sake. I get for it. The true I get it. faith, which is for so, you, America so that reminds me so when when you were at first things for how, how long was that for it
2: was a good stretch of time uh, yeah I don't remember exactly I think uh, I mean I, I I think I printed like 150 articles yeah well in this day, I mean Richard Newhouse uh you know he he went towards the neocon story yeah certainly Public at a time after uh, but you know, at the same time, he was still proud of, of his youth and uh, activities in the civil rights movement and marching with MLK. And he didn't mind that there were diversity. He didn't mind the fact that I was a bit of a panko and all that. And and at the end of the day, I mean, I always thought of Richard as he was a priest first, and he really cared. He did care about poverty and things like that. We, we would have disagreements. So, and, and, for, and, and, and so it was... It was an, it was uncontentious. I mean, there were other people like me who weren't neocons who were nonetheless writing for. I mean, Paul Griffiths is yep. basically old labor, you know.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Um, uh, but uh, and in fact, they even published Stanley Fish in one episode. In one 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 did uh, they? Yeah, me. I remember that. And certainly Stanley Howarwas doesn't fit. In, you know, fit in the uh, the, the rock ribbed Republican right. uh, category. So it was, but. Um, so that lasted right up until and I I mean I owed them a lot I mean they, to be honest they gave me they did not interfere with my writing they gave me even after Richard passed away they allowed me to write in my voice which is very much my voice and, yeah uh, and got me a following that that uh, that that made it possible awesome for me to keep writing so you know I, I tried not and until they started attacking me like you know three attacks on one book at a time you know yeah. because of hurt feelings mostly but i severed ties with them obviously when when they started gravitating towards the politics that i find genuinely evil i mean i'm yeah. just the old right, and i and I, I didn't mind you know old-fashioned conservatives and old-fashioned liberals i could deal with both of them uh,
0: yeah it seems it's a here very difficult publication is, now.
2: But now I felt and yeah, I but also it. the quality of the publication has also sunk through the floor. I mean, they used to have such rigorous standards about the quality of discourse and now especially and maybe it's because the web page now drives the print journal in a way that
0: wasn't asked.
2: Yeah. And so web culture has taken over. But I mean they they publish real trash now. No. Man. Was it was it David Mills who was who took over after no David David uh David remained uh chief editor under Jody bottom and then under Rusty for a while then Rusty abruptly fired him for yeah
0: some I heard time. about that
2: And I was for a certainly bad reason um uh, and I used to Rusty and I used to be friends so I won't say anything more and, and he's I think he he I, I think he's always been well I just think that that something went wrong
0: yeah Probably.
2: at some point in how he sees reality some anger deeper than than
0: love okay sorry to hear that mm. but uh, so uh i think it's probably about time for us to wrap it up a little bit david yeah you can edit that
2: stuff out too if you want to leave out the, uh, the i think uh, it's all interesting i'm not embarrassed of it
0: <laughs> but but no. david this has been a real pleasure f- for us both i can i'm sure i can say that well, yeah, and it's... i I would love to talk to you again at length about fiction. Yeah, I don't think there's
1: been enough <laughs> reviews of the book yet, so I was glad for us to focus on this, you know. Um,
2: I'm afraid, you know, I'll tell you, as I said, it was bad enough when I was a young writer and uh, and I was being told by editors that they were really impressed by my fiction, but they didn't know if, if, if there was still a market for this kind. And I was a bit of a kind of like high modernist in my uh, um, but once you've written books on, re- on religion or theology you, you really do have a hard time being uh, re- uh you know reviewed as anything else mm-hmm. um well, so I, i've i've gotten used to it but i i uh i do think that roland and moonlight and this uh might really be the best work i've done for a long time I, I, well it's certainly here well i i certainly i mean they're they're the ones closest to my sensibility role and I mean, that that basically is the book into which I poured myself yeah. Okay. Um, I'll have to read that I haven't read it it's beautiful it's beautiful. again I work I work fun. with
1: in campus ministry and I think what you're doing with um amongst many things but the um this freeing up of the whole sensibilities you just gave people like you threw a lot of the tools in the air and now people have different things and that's of inestimable value. I still believe
2: know? I'm going to be kidnapped by a group of, of, of the, new, the new manualist, Tomas, <laughs> and secretly burned at a stake yeah. uh, <laughs> on the campus of Ave Maria. Uh, they don't yeah. like
0: me either. <laughs> They're off to get me as well. That's yeah. okay.
2: Yeah, but you, you deserve it.
0: I do. <laughs> right. that's okay. Well, this has been right. great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, David. Thanks,
1: everybody, for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you again uh, next week. Thank you, David Bentley Hart.